My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back to Transmissions. It's so great to have you here for another episode. My guest this week on the show needs very little in the way of introduction. It's guitarist and songwriter Richard Thompson. He's written a great new memoir called Bees Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975, and it covers the early days of Fairport Convention, as well as Thompson's work with Linda Thompson and he gets into all sorts of incredible stories about sharing stages with Pink Floyd, working with the incredible vocalist Sandy Denny, and a lot more. So we're not gonna, uh, we're not gonna dilly-dally around. We're gonna get right into it. But before we do that, I'm gonna take the opportunity to remind you that our podcast is primarily supported by our Patreon pledgers. So head over to patreon.com and check out Aquarium Drunkard so you can help us keep this independent creative project going. Uh, we know that people get a lot out of the podcast. Uh, so if you're one of those folks who, who listens each week to our strange conversations for our strange times, uh, you can head over to Patreon and uh, chip a couple bucks in to keep us on the digital uh, airwaves. Anyway, here's my conversation with Richard Thompson. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Richard, it's a true honor to have you here on Transmissions. Thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, so I finished uh, Bees Wing this morning, actually. Uh, this is an incredible book. Thank you for putting it out. I'm curious, did you enjoy writing it overall? Uh, I did. I mean, I really enjoyed uh, writing the anecdotal stuff, you know, you know um, writing about old friends, situations, uh, uh, what, what, I, what I found hard was putting it into chronological order uh, because I didn't keep diaries. Um, so placing things in a time frame was very difficult. I had to rely on, um, you know, websites where, where they have, you know, um, every Fairpool Convention gig, you know, since 1967. Sure. Uh, that, that was the hard bit. Uh, but the, uh, the the actual writing was it was a pleasure. Yeah. You, in the back, there's... Uh an appendix with some dreams that you that you referenced throughout the book you mentioned you didn't keep a diary or anything like that 
do you typically have a pretty good memory of your of your dreams? Well, I find memories uh, of dreams from that period are quite vivid. Uh, but perhaps it was the drugs. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, I, I remember sometimes really, really clearly, more clearly than I remember, um, you know, day-to-day stuff, uh, for instance. Yeah, but just because they kind of stood out in my memory. Um, at a certain point, I started writing dreams down. And I think uh, I wrote those down about 20 years ago, um, just, just so I wouldn't forget them. Yeah, uh, and, and, and now if, if I have an interesting dream, I, I will, I will, um, I will write it down somewhere. Um, but I, I think I think dreams are interesting, uh, especially because I think they're very close to the creative process. You know, you know, um, it, it's a short step from from the the unconscious to the semi conscious, uh, which is the kind of state I think that that you write um, or, or, or you know that you create anything in. Uh, it's it's not exactly a fully conscious state. That, that there's that there's um, that there's other elements in play there. So um, I really put the dreams in just to, to give some indication of uh, of my inner life, if you like. I especially like the Jesus dream. That's a very interesting one. Quite quite funny. <laughs> yeah, it's quite funny. I, I mean, I'm, I'm laying myself open here to, to um, you know, to some psychologist um, <laughs> having serious insight in, 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 into my world. But um, well, we'll see. I'm sure it's all very symbolic and, and uh, it means I'm crazy or something. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, you can't control your dreams. You're not responsible for your dreams. But it, they are funny and... Uh, in, in the cases of the ones in the book, they're, they're just surreal. I mean, they're just so weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, you open yourself up a lot in the book. One of the my favorite parts comes kind of early, which is where you're talking about hearing, I believe over the radio, or maybe it was a record, but Les Paul playing Caravan, the, the Duke Ellington song. And you talk yeah. about your, your father's Django Reinhardt records as well, and, and the fondness with which you write about that stuff really moved me. I'm curious, what was the first music that made you yourself want to play guitar? Was it some of that stuff? Uh, it was probably um, more the rock and roll stuff, which seemed more, you know, of, uh, of of my generation or, you know, certainly my sister's generation, my older sister's, uh, was buying the records. And it was sort of filtering down to me through through the through the bedroom wall, uh, but um, you know that seemed to speak much more. You know that had the energy uh, and the, uh, the kind of rebellion built into it. The, the, as a kid, you thought, "Yes, I'm, this is for me. This is my kind of stuff." And of course, everyone played the guitar. You know, people you saw on TV were playing guitars. People you heard on records were playing guitars. You know, Buddy Holly played a guitar, so, so it, it must be cool. Um, so that was probably more. You know what really moved me to to want to play, and and the Django and the Les Paul was kind of in the background, but but probably I, I absorbed it without really thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. When you all started Fairport Convention, there was sort of a concept in place, basically, which was that you would sort of, uh, or eventually you seized on the concept. Maybe it wasn't there right at the very beginning, but this idea of sort of combining traditional music with sort of that rock and roll energy. Um, one of the things that I thought was so interesting was listening to, I listened to like Time Will Show the Wiser, which has long been one of my favorite Fairport songs. And that's from the first record. And, and right away you hear, 
your voice in you're one of the harmonies in 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 the chorus right and 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 obviously you're playing guitar i was struck by the fact that it sounds fully formed to me it sounds like you right away but you write a lot in the book about sort of trying to find your musical voice and how you weren't always sure that you had a lock on it, but it sounds to me like it was there right away. I'm curious, did you have something in your head that you were sort of going for, that you were working towards, uh, and and, and what sense you might have had of it when you were actually starting out? Because a lot of music is just fumbling around and hearing something that your bandmate plays that inspires you to do something. So I'm, I'm curious what that sort of felt like in the very, very early days. Uh, <clears throat> well, I, I think, I think to begin with, we all start off um, copying other people. Uh, you have your heroes and, and, and you try to imitate them. You, you try to do what they do. <clears throat> and, and then um, at a certain point, you try to go beyond that. And um and having a, a range of influences uh, means you become this kind of sum total of, of all these disparate elements, uh, w which becomes your style, you know. So for me, it was, you know, it was the rock and roll. Uh, it, it was, you know, you, you know um, the piano of Jerry Lee Lewis, maybe, um, where, where, where I'm trying to, to get the, the kind of rhythm he plays on the piano. Uh, plus, it's, it's, it's my dad's Les Paul and Django records. Uh, plus, it's, you know, James Burton playing on a, on a Rick Nelson record. You know, so all these things get, get, go into the kind of mix and become your style. And um, uh, playing in a band, you, you know, you, know you, you, you learn from each other a lot. Um, it's, it's one of the great ways to develop as a musician is to just be in a band and you, you all kind of push each other or, or drag each other forwards, you know, um, that, that's a great thing. And at a certain point in Fairport, we, we did um, really say, okay, well, we're going to definitely concentrate now on, on um, playing um, this kind of hybrid music, which is a mixture of traditional British music and and uh and rock music we're going to play these, these old ballads in some cases um with electric instruments and with drums um and that was a new thing in the uk that was different a new genre really you you write a lot about being interested in in being original and also not necessarily being like a a pop act and that you had sort of these like artistic uh, ambitions that you really wanted to create something that was new and uh, and of value and also sort of artistically um, pure you know which I find very very interesting but but I'm curious did you, did you feel in those days like you were a fairly critical player in terms of like thinking about what you were doing and sort of analyzing it and trying to push it into new directions. Where does that sort of critical faculty come from for you? Do, do you have any, hmm. any idea? Uh, well, I, I think I, I had it built in somehow. Um, you know, I, I wanted to do something different. I, I wanted to be a pioneer musically somehow. Uh, and I fell in with other people who were really uh, very idealistic about music. And uh, we all thought about what we did. Um, we were all you know, reflective of the kind of music that, that, we, that we made. Uh, we didn't want to be another British blues band. It didn't want to be another British R&B band, um, recycling American styles. Right. Um, we love lyrics. So from the very beginning of Fairport, we were covering, you know, Leonard Kine and, and Dylan and Johnny Mitchell and people like that. Um, 
well, we wanted to be different, and I think we were different. Um, we we stood out in 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 that way uh, from the other people around the London psychedelic music scene at that time. You know, we weren't Pink Floyd, we weren't the Crazy World of Arthur Brown. You know, we, we were something distinct, and. Um, at that time, uh, the audience would accept you, really, whoever you were and uh, whatever style you played. So, so it, was a, it was a good time to be coming up. It was a good, good time to ride in on that psychedelic wave of music. That's something very, very interesting is that Fairport had sort of a, a, a strange relationship to psychedelia, right? Because on one hand, you were able to focus, or sorry, rather, the the freedom of the psychedelic movement allowed you to be opened up to kind of do long solos and sort of more extended improvisatory playing, which, you know, obviously that had a huge impact on the sound of the group. But also, like you said, you were rooted more in traditional songcraft and 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 all of that stuff. Um, groups like the band you know, come to mind in terms of this more rustic, sort of more uh, traditional thing. But at the same time, I just wonder, I mean, were audiences, did the fact that audiences were maybe a little out there and a little spaced and perhaps very stoned, you know, make you guys feel like you had the opportunity to to go new places sort of under the guise of this new movement of psychedelia while not necessarily being a part of it yourselves? Well, the audiences were stoned, absolutely, um, <laughs> which um, you know allowed us, uh, as you said, a lot of freedom. And uh, you know, and um, yeah, yeah, Pink Floyd would be playing, and there'd be the light shows, and you know, and, and the the sort of the you know the 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 weird lighting, and God knows what, and and that will be happening when we're playing as well. So 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 we're playing in this kind of psychedelic uh, um, arena, if you like, and. Um, I, I yeah I, I suppose um you know that you, you certainly have permission at, at that point uh, to play long instrumental passages um you, you know some some bands were ninety percent instrumental a band like Soft Machine you know were, were mostly instrumental band there wasn't that much in the way of vocals um, so Fairport style really evolved that way without us necessarily thinking about it too much uh, we, you know we we were a lyric band we love lyrics we love to play songs. But on top of that, we would also do uh, long solo passages. Um, not every song, but some songs. Sure. In the early days, you'd play shows with bands like Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Social Deviants, and Incredible String Band, and Pink Floyd, who you've mentioned, you know, with your, your distant cousin, Sid Barrett. Um, I, that was very interesting. What, what, was, <laughs> what was the mood like at shows in those days, at places like the UFO Club? I mean, was it, was it a pretty exciting scene? Uh, yeah, well, it was it was something um, for us new anyway. Um, you, you know, as soon as we started playing uh, around uh, London, um, we became you know very aware of, of this fairly new, you know, uh, uh, psychedelic movement. It probably started in '66 actually, mm-hmm. but but by '67 it was in full flow, and um, we just accepted it as this is where you play, this is what you do. Um, uh, it was um, it was a, a very good, you know, um, friendly scene, I'd say. You know, um, and in those days, you know, every, everyone would share one dressing room, so, so you, you'd be in there with all the other bands. Um, you, you know, you, you'd chat, you compare notes, yeah, you, you, you'd uh, play each other's guitars, you know, to, just to check them out. I mean, it was it was a kind of a friendly scene, um, and uh, you know, it wasn't bitchy or anything. It was it was, it was all pretty. Um, 
uh, amiable, I, sh- I should say. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know, the, the, and, and the audiences, are, uh, as we've said, we're we're kind of accepting of pretty much anything. Did you ever get the sense that other bands were especially into what you guys were doing? Uh, I did. I didn't get the sense. I, I, I think <laughs> other bands um, liked us because uh, maybe we, we weren't um, comp- com- competing with them. Well, um, yeah, you know. that's yeah. that's the sense I get listening to some of the stuff, especially those early records. Is that it? It's a nice compliment. Like I could see it sounding very good to have you on the same bill as Pink Floyd, but then it's its own thing. It's not necessarily the same. You're not after the same. You're not going the same place necessarily, which is which is interesting. No, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, the the, the bands that were going the same place. There's a band called Eclection that, that were kind of almost it was like a Fairport spinoff. Mm. Um, and Trevor Lucas eventually ended up in Fairport at one point. Um, but mostly, you know, the, um, other bands emerged a little bit later. Bands like Steel Ice Band, the Albion Band, were were really into the seventies. You know, that, that, that they, they were that much later. Um, sure. So. You know, so, so we were always on bills with, with a band called Family, um, who were a great band. Uh, um, we're, we're kind of an R&B band, but, but they wrote very good songs. Uh, and a band called Blossom Toes, so we were always on bills with Blossom Toes. Uh, again, they were kind of, um, you know, a band that wrote their own material. Um, and in their own way, we're trying to be original. Uh, Jim Cregan from that band went on to play with uh, Rod Stewart and people. Um, so, mm. yeah, um, yeah. Uh, hopefully, we were, we were uh, non-threatening. <laughs> you you encountered uh, Jimi Hendrix kind of early on. What, what was it like as a guitarist when Hendrix showed up on the scene? Well, interesting. I, I think I saw him qu- quite early on when he just about formed the experience. Um, mm-hmm. Saw him in a little club, maybe three hundred people, and uh, it was it was uh, different. You know, I, I mean, I'd seen the Who, who did a lot of the uh, sort of he- stage acts. That, that, that Hendrix took a lot from the Who, actually. I think, um, but uh, you know, Pete Townsend was much more of a, a kind of a rhythm guitarist. You know, like like a punchy. You know, um, you know, feedback, feedbacky kind of guitar player. Yeah, Hendrix had a lot of skill, and um, uh, Hendrix clearly had had a lot of chops. He was a lot more um, adventurous than the British blues players, a lot like Eric Clapton or Peter Green at that time. Um, so, so it was clearly something else. Plus, he was, he was a seriously good showman. Yeah, who could. Um, always upstage you you know he could always uh, do something else he, he could play with his teeth he, he could you know he, he could uh you know play behind his back i mean he could do all, all kinds of tricks you know that, that he learned you know in, in on, on the chitlin circuit in the states yeah playing um, playing with like you know james brown and stuff right yeah um yeah. played with little richard um, oh, little richard yes yeah yeah little richard uh, uh so, so um so hendrix was intimidating um intimidating to all those british guitar players uh but also, I mean, intimidating to me, and it's one of the reasons I probably thought, well, I'm not going to compete here. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm going to try and involve my own style. This is a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. You talk at one point about Mott the Hoople playing a show with them, and they had the stage act down. You know, they were doing these sort of choreographed moves, and they were really whipping the audience up into a frenzy. And and Fairport decided you were going to give that a shot too, but sort of. Perhaps more cynically than they than they did, um, but you were shocked that it that it worked. I'm curious. 
you know, and uh, although although John Peel at that show apparently wasn't a big fan of what you all had 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 done, um, which you know must have much of must have stung a little bit. But I'm curious, did you feel at the time? How comfortable did you feel on stage, generally speaking, in the early days of Fairport Convention? If you're speaking about me personally, um, I was always a bit shy on stage. Um, I didn't want to be the center of attention. I, I reluctantly took vocals. I loved to sing, but I just didn't like being at the front of the stage. You know, I, I, I preferred to be at the back somewhere. Uh, so uh, stage for me was a mixed blessing for a, a while um, around that time. Um, I think it got easier. I, I think when I started working with Linda in, in, in um, you know, in the, in the early 70s, uh, playing in folk clubs mostly, um, I think I, I developed more, more confidence at that point. Sure, yeah. You, I, 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 it's kind of interesting to me the way... Fairport's lineup was fairly fluid for those early years. You know, there was sort of people in and out. Judy, obviously, uh, your first singer, Ian Matthews. And and it just sort of seemed like as the band evolved, there was a willingness to say, so-and-so's style doesn't necessarily fit what we do anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And that is understandable and and pretty typical for rock bands but what's less typical is that you all stayed seemingly very amiable and close and continued to collaborate in various you know ways you're all over you know ian matthews early records you obviously with sandy denny uh produced some incredible records and i think things were even pretty good with judy and so i'm curious where you know what what was that um where did that sense of camaraderie come from that that allowed you guys to uh, remain collaborators even as you were dealing with the ups and downs of being a, a rock band and somebody who had been booted out of the band or, or whatever? Uh, yeah, I'm, I suppose in some ways I don't understand it. Uh, I think uh, we started out as a bunch of friends, Um we were never one of the, one of those bands that was you know sniping at each other or, or you know got together for the music but didn't really like each other. I mean, we, we were always a friendly band, and we didn't hire obnoxious people. You know, we, we really tried to hire people that, that we thought we could get along with. I think really, um, yeah. And for the, for the most part, that that worked. Um, uh, you, you know, Judy, you know, clearly didn't have a strong enough voice uh, to, to be singing over a band that was getting louder. Yeah. So that was a factor. Um, Ian clearly was much more interested in in country rock than he was in in the traditional rock that, that we were going towards and, and was finding himself at a loose end i mean he he didn't know what to do on particular songs so you know there was obviously you know a parting of the ways there um but you know we did stay friends i mean ian and i you know we're still sharing a flat you know a year later um mm-hmm. after he left the band um, you know, I, I was still living with Fairport the, the, in, the, in the communal house. Um, you know, when, when, when I left the band for, an, for another few months, I mean, yeah. so it's a strange thing. I, I don't fully understand it, but I, I, maybe also uh, because, um, you know, the British folk rock scene was a small scene. So you couldn't just, um, you know, disappear into another realm, you know, and, right. and, 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 and not play with the people you've been playing with. Um, you tended to end up on sessions with the same people. Uh, sometimes, you know, someone would leave a band, 
and just migrate to the next band and then migrate <laughs> to another band. And so, so you, you keep running into the same people. You know, it was, it was a small scene of, of, you know, 20, 25 people that, that just kept kind of, kind of uh, fairly tight and, and friendly. I, I mean, I, I don't, I can't think of anyone I, I didn't get on with in, on that particular scene. Yeah, Weird that's, thing. that is, that's, that's interesting. And, 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 very beautiful in a in a in a way because it's like it produced all these great great records obviously sandy denny's early records the her first one i mean you you express some ambivalence about the way the strings are mixed on it and i can certainly hear your hear your point because it does kind of overshadow some of the interplay but nonetheless what an incredible record and uh and your work with her is 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 incredible when when you first encountered sandy I loved the description of you all uh, auditioning her, but quickly realizing she was auditioning you more or less. Um, Absolutely. What was what did you think when you when you first heard Sandy's voice? What was your sense of of her as a, as an artist? Well, she seemed um, really accomplished as a singer. Um, she, she had a big range as a singer. Uh, she just had a big dynamic range of things. She, she could go from a whisper to to, to full volume uh, without um, any, any any loss at any 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 uh, stage. You know, uh, like a good opera singer can do that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Emotionally, there's something about her voice um, that's elusive, but um, she could put this certain kind of emotion into a song. Um, that often made her the, the definitive interpreter of that song. Yeah. Um, all the songs that I wrote for the band that she sang, I mean, I can't think of a better better version of those songs. She, she would just kill it. I mean, she, she without even talking about it, she'd just sing it perfectly, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely one of the best singers I've ever heard in, in my life. Um, and... Uh, you know, it was a short life, sadly. Uh, I wish her legacy was, was uh, you know, more songs, you know, more more albums uh, that we could appreciate. But, but I, th- I think people are slowly uh, catching up with Sandy. It's taken a long time, but um, people are, are realizing how good she was. Uh, I went back and listened to the the top Top Gear version of "You Never Wanted Me," the the Jackson C. Frank song that she uh, played when you all first first played together. And yeah. uh, wow, it's it's mind blowing. It's a mind blowing arrangement. I've listened to the solo versions of her, you know, do it, but then to hear you all accompany her and do so with such sympathetic arrangements, it's 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 it feels so so sophisticated and so uh, and so nuanced for such a young band. It's 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 like there really was a sense that that there was some sort of magic thing happening between you all when i listened to to that early stuff yeah i mean i i think it, it was uh, it was magic um maybe it's a good thing that we didn't have a lot of time to rehearse i mean we 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 really had to throw sandy into the band uh, as we're working you know we we just add a song by song by song yeah you know into the you know into the the, the, the repertoire um and you know, uh, in the case of some of Sandy's songs that, that she brought with her to the band, it, it, it was uh, just us kind of molding around her, really, and, and saying, "How can we? How can we be sympathetic in this situation?" Yeah. So, uh, um, and it, on a song like that, I think it worked very well. She obviously went on to sing with. You know, she had a lot of different projects before her her 
untimely passing. Um, she 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 of course recorded the Battle of Evermore with with Led Zeppelin. I didn't ever realize that Fairport and the members of Led Zeppelin had jammed in was it nineteen seventy or so. Yeah, yeah. How- well, um, that was um, our bass player Dave Pegg uh, was from Birmingham. And he'd been in bands with uh, John Bonham and uh, and Robert Plant, um, it, you know, uh, around the Birmingham scene. Uh, <clears> that did never ever break out of Birmingham. Uh, it's also in a band called the Uglies, you know, that, that, that were a kind of a bigger chart chart band from Birmingham. So uh, th- there was already that connection. So um, uh, you know, th- there were people that, that we would run into, um, you know, th- thanks to Peggy. And, and at some point, I think we were at the Troubadour in Los Angeles, and and. Uh, and, and there was a sort of jam session on the stage, which was uh, legendary. And it was all recorded, but no one could find the recording, unfortunately. But we'll one day, one day we'll, we'll discover. <laughs> do, do you do you think that it's out there somewhere? That some that somewhere in some box or whatever, it maybe maybe it exists. Well, I think somebody took it because uh, because it was seen in the AM uh, vaults. Okay. Uh, up, up until a certain year, and then it disappeared. Wow. And I have my suspicions of, of who might might have taken it, um, but 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 so somebody just just basically took it out the vault and uh, and uh, probably still got it. Well, I hope that they decide to put it out, uh, <laughs> you know, because I want to hear it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I was thinking about how 1969 saw the release of of. Was it three Fairport records? Uh, one that had been recorded in in '68, but released in '69. Three yeah. albums. I mean, that's that's even by those standards, when when records would come out, you know, fairly fairly quickly or fairly often, rather, with a working band, that's still pretty pretty. Uh, that's an intense run for a band to put out all that stuff. Was it just? A deep enthusiasm for what you were doing that was sort of motivating this 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 drive this push or or do you think that did you all feel like you had something to prove what what was sort of the what was sort of the the behind that that uh that drive i think uh probably joe boyd uh just wanted to keep us recording uh um really uh we didn't say, okay, we're, we're going to go into the studio now and make a record. Well, we, we would just record tracks um, yeah. as, as they, you know, came up really, as they were rehearsed, we'd say, okay, let's record this, this one or this two, you know, let's try two, two or three songs. Um, and, and we would really slot recording in anywhere that we could. Uh, in some cases it, it was uh, after a show where we'd drive back to London from, you know, a couple of hours or something from out of town and drive to the studio and we'd record all night um yeah and, and then did do a show the next day um well yeah i think when you're young you can do that kind of crazy stuff you know um i couldn't do it now that's for sure <laughs> sure uh yeah um yeah well we, we just we just constantly re- recording uh, we didn't ever stop and i, I suppose you know, we'd accumulate enough songs, and that'd be an album. And then we, we'd accumulate more. That was an album. Um, yeah, I, I think um, we were doing that. It was something every six months, really. Uh, and it didn't seem like hard work. It didn't seem like we were, you know, killing ourselves to 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 to, to, to um, meet a deadline or anything. Um, sure. So uh, yeah, it was just um, just a thing that we did. Uh, you also write in the book about 
like Sandy, somebody whose whose life was very short, but but whose legacy is is pretty monumental was was Nick Drake, you know, who who you play on 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 his work as well. Um, what was your sense of 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 Nick in the uh, you you write about listening to Pink Moon, his his final record, and sort of being almost like spooked by it or, 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 or yeah. yeah. What, what, what did, what did you think when you heard, when you heard that for the first time? I had Pink Moon. Um, I was concerned for Nick's mental health. I think more than anything else, uh, you know, it's, he sounds so fragile on that record and so broken. And, uh, it sounds to me almost like a cry for help. Yeah. Um, uh, and I know that, that, that Joe Boyd and John Wood, you know, uh, the, the producer and engineer of that record, uh, you know, liked it because it was so naked. Yeah. Uh, but, but to me, it, it, was, it was far more disturbing than that. And, and, and I thought, oh, shit, you know, I, I, you know Nick's, uh, Nick's in trouble. But, um, you know, we were working, you know, all the time. Uh, you know, I never saw him. Um, after that record came out, I don't think I saw, I saw Nick again. Yeah. Uh, and he went back to live with his parents um, at the end of his life, and and uh, and you know he he, he had some uh, probably an accidental overdose or, or something. Uh, I don't think it was a suicide. Um, yeah. And and that seemed tragic, and it seemed tragic that that people hadn't hadn't really heard him. You know, um, did, did he sell like a couple of thousand records in his lifetime? Maybe, maybe. Um, right. You know, it, it took a VW commercial, you know, uh, to you know for people to think who is this guy you know and and slowly slowly um there's been a kind of groundswell of, of interest in nick and uh so many people ask me now uh, uh, about nick um it, which is interesting i i think he's had an influence um uh, yeah. <laughs> even after his death uh, actually uh, but people have found him and uh, and realized how great he is I was one of the many people who first heard him on the the Volkswagen commercial. Absolutely, there you, there you go. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I heard it, and I just, I, uh, it's funny that that's a that commercial is quite a, a a previous guest on our show here. Amanda Petrogish wrote a great book about about Pink Moon and talked about the uh, the resurgence of interest in his in his music. But yeah, hearing that on on a commercial. The way that guitar sounds, it was just like I got to figure out who this is. This is the coolest thing yeah. I've ever heard, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's 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 interesting. That 1969, obviously, it, it marked a turning point in the band as well because of this tragic car accident that you write about in the book, um, mm. in which you know, Fairport's drummer Martin Lambold passed away. Jeannie, your girlfriend at the time, Jeannie Franklin passed away I, I i'm curious how how difficult was it to revisit that experience um did it still feel fresh or had that strange thing happened where the longer you uh are removed from something it almost feels like it happened to someone else or something i'm curious what it was like for you yeah um I think to get through writing it, sometimes I, I thought that you know I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend this is about someone else. Uh, you know, it, it didn't really really feel like that. Uh, it's not something that I want to look at all the time. Yeah. Um, for the sake of the book and telling the story, uh, and maybe for the sake of Martin and Jeannie's families as well, I, I wanted to, to really remember as clearly as possible everything that happened there. So. Um, you know, it's a process that I kind of had to grip my teeth and, and get through. Um, yeah. That, that, you know, the hardest part of the book to write, for sure. 
and doing the audio book, which I just did, um, that that was really, really tough uh, to, to read it, um, you know, out loud. Um, but maybe in revisiting it, there was some catharsis in that for me. Um, and I hope it gives people, a, you know, a, a better understanding of, of, uh, of Fairport, you know, and, and uh, what, what we went through as a band um, and you know, how we memorialized um, those people in song sometimes. Yeah. And, um, you know, I I hope people go back to the old records and listen to Martin's drumming, which was just fabulous, you know, really great. Um, You know, Ginny was a a very talented designer, dress designer. Yeah. Um, You know, I I think her family never really knew um, what happened to her. So so perhaps they'll get to read the book and, and that will be something for them too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't realize that you had recorded the audio book yourself. I, I I'm excited to to revisit it. Did you did you enjoy that process? Was that how long does it yeah, take so, to record an audio book? I've never. <laughs> I'm I'm curious. <laughs> well, yeah, it it is curious. Uh, you know, um, the, the 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 audio company said, "Well, we'll put you in the studio for three days." You know, that that would be plenty of time to get through it. And and, and I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm not sure I could do it in three days. Um, <laughs> So why don't I do it at home? I'll do it in my home studio. Um, I'll send it to, to, my, to my sound engineer to, to clean it up, you know, mm-hmm. which is another big, big thing with audio books is, is you know, cutting out all the, all the Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All that kind of stuff. Um, uh, it, it probably took me two weeks, actually. Mm. You know, I, I, I do an hour a day, sometimes two hours a day, and, and, that, and that was plenty for me at the time. Um so I think, uh, yeah, it, it, it takes a while. Um, the, the other thing is, is you have to really keep the same tone of voice all the time. So, so yeah, you have to keep referring back to what you did the day before or at the right. beginning of the process and, and keep that consistent so, so you don't start the book down here and you end up, <laughs> end up you know, an octave higher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of my one of the things I really really liked about the book as well was in addition to you know you keeping track of these great stories and sharing all these wonderful anecdotes, you write a lot about the things you were interested in at various times, especially literary wise. You you talk about being a big fan of of like Philip K. Dick and and liking science fiction and write about being in San Francisco and going to City Lights and you know reading. Uh, Richard Brodigan and and Thomas Pynchon and all these all these people. Um, have you always been a, a pretty big reader? I have, yes. Uh, and I suppose I put those references in just um, you know to give people insight, if you like, you know, you know, insight and and, and background into you know uh, the creative process, like, you know how songs evolved. You know, th- th- this is what you're reading at the time. This is what comes out. Yeah, you know, there is a you know there's frequently is a connection between you know input and output really. Uh, sure. So yeah, I, I'm you know I, I'm still a reader. I mean I love to read. Um, uh, is is that old fashioned these days? I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean may, maybe a little bit. I know uh, for me at the start of quarantine, I I read a lot. I read so much. It's like I was a kid again. You know, because when I was a teenager, I would. I, and younger, I would read nonstop. And then at some point in quarantine, my brain switched and I was just like, I can hardly keep my uh, eyes focused on a page. I don't know what happened, you know, but um, yeah, yeah. hopefully I'm getting back into it. Your book was remarkably easy to read. And I mean that in, in the best way, not that it was uh, lacking in any uh, substance, but rather just that you're so clear and so uh, 
your sentences are, 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 are very, very wonderfully constructed and very propulsive. I felt like the book just sort of moved along. Um, and I imagine okay. as somebody who's read so much, you probably had some sense that if you were going to write a book, you wanted to make sure that it was that it was very good. <laughs> Well, I think um, you know they say uh, if you read, then then you can write. That's true. Yeah. You, know, you, you don't have to think about it. You know, you 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 learn to spell by reading. You learn you learn grammar by reading. You you learn sentence construction by reading. Uh, and also, um, I think as a songwriter, uh, there's a certain rhythm that you 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 write lyrics to, and I think that spills over in, into whatever prose you write as well. So so so, the, the, so you want to hear music in your sentences. Yeah, you know, like a certain cadence yeah. um, in the sentences that you write, uh, and um, certainly the best prose writers have that. People like Dickens or you know Lord Byron or, or whoever you, you want to quote as great prose writers have got that that kind of instinctive rhythm um, that, that runs all through their work. So that that's probably something that I aim for. Yeah. In addition to some of the literature, you you write about being very interested in in like esoteric stuff, um, being interested in the writing of you know Madame Blavatsky and and Gurdjieff and and uh, sort of the occult, you know, astrology, Zen. Um, yeah. Did you did you uh, as a, as a as a very young person as a kid, did you feel at all like a spiritual seeker? Um, when, when or or when did that rather enter sort of into your your life? This sort of desire to to find something that it seems like you eventually did find in Sufism, but but it yeah. took it took a little while to get there. Uh, what what was what was that journey like? Well, of course, yeah. I mean, it probably started um, really as a uh, maybe a fifteen sixteen year old. Um, uh, I, I think I'd been put off um, Christianity by be, being dragged to church when I, when I was a kid and not really understanding what was going on. So, so I, you know, I, I couldn't connect that with, with um, um, spiritual quest, if you like. Uh, when, I, when I was 16, I, I just started to read. You know, I, I, I'd go to the, the bookshops in the West End of London and, and pick up interesting books on Zen and uh, Gurdjieff. You know, there, there was this great bookshop called uh, Watkins um, in London, Um which had all the, you know, it was very Harry, Harry Potterish. You know, had all the, the uh, all, all the esoteric stuff. You know, so, so I, I just got fascinated by that, and and I, you know, I would read about astrology, and I'd read read about, um, you know, anthroposophy, and I'd, I'd read about, um, you know, um, yeah, Gurdjieff and, and Spensky and all these people, um, and, and I sort of stumbled on on the Sufis. You know, that they were kind of quoted by other people uh, um, to some extent, and. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is really interesting. You know, this is the kind of thing that, that I, I'm looking for. And almost as I'm framing that thought, um, the, the real Sufis almost literally turn up on my doorstep. Yeah. Uh, and, and um, you know, I think I recognized in them something that I really wanted for myself. Um, you know, they seem to have, have a knowledge and a kind of a way of being. That was very attractive to me, so um, that's who I fell in with, and, and I'm still there, really, in, uh, in a spiritual sense. Was the music associated with the with the the religion? Was that also a big part of it? You talk about being in these these meetings and singing unaccompanied. You know, was there was yeah. was there, was there a musical attraction to you as well for the faith? Well, yeah, I think there really is. Um, but you know, at various. Um, Places around the world that there are 
sciences of music. Uh, you, you could say like the Indian ragas uh, is, is a science of music. Mm-hmm. And um, in uh, Andalusian Spain, uh, from so, you know, 800 to 1400, whatever it was, um, when the Moors were in Spain, there, there was a science of music, which was called Andalusian music. And, and, and uh, when the Moors left Spain, that became the classical music of North Africa, of Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia. Uh, and it still is. It's like their classical music. It's it's, it's their traditional music. Mm-hmm. So um, I got exposed to a lot of that style of music, uh, and it sounds kind of western. It doesn't sound particularly oriental or anything. Uh, you know, it, it's it's really the, the western end of uh, of Islam, if you want. And um, so, so I, I got interested in the science. I tried to understand the science, and uh, it probably affected um, the music that music that, that I write really, and, and the music that I try to play. So uh, it's in there. It's in the mix now these days. Eventually, you struck out on your own um, with with away from Fairport, Fairport, and you did you did your first you did your first record. And then uh, you you met Linda Peters, you know, who became your wife, and and you two recorded "I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight," which to my ears is one of the finest albums ever released. Um, you get two spots on that on that list because uh, because you also did "Shoot Out the Lights," which will get to in just a second probably but um when i listen to that record i hear an intense spiritual longing in in i want to see the bright lights tonight um and 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 i wonder what kind of conversations would maybe well let's sorry let me i'm, I'm getting ahead of myself uh, <laughs> what, what 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 was encountering linda uh and and her voice like what did, what did what did hearing her voice bring out in your in your own music when you first met each other um, well, she's a very different singer from Sandy, but, uh, you know, her voice is, 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 if you like, straighter. Her voice is more like a laser beam. Like it kind of just cuts straight through to, to your heart. Mm. Um, so she has that quality. Again, it's a different kind of emotion, but, but it's, it's, uh, uh, it's an extraordinary voice, um, a very, very beautiful voice. And, uh, you know, but because we were dating anyway, um, you know, she was doing her career stuff, which is a bit more poppy. Um, plus, she was singing like commercials and stuff. Um, uh, and I was, you know, doing session work really. And I was playing with Sandy's Sandy's band. I was playing with Ian's band. We said, well, you know, it, it, at least if we work together, we'll, we'll see each other because we, we, we were we'd spent months like not seeing each other. Mm-hmm. So we, we decided to team up musically, and um, and that, that worked very well from the beginning. Um, so, so we'd be playing a folk club, so we'd have a repertoire of original songs. We do covers, we do traditional songs, we do country songs, we, we do all kinds of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that was comfortable. We wrote enough songs to, to make the Bright Lights album, um, which again was a very, um, I almost want to say lucky, like, like a lucky record because nothing really slowed it down. Hmm. Uh, we recorded it in, you know, three days, I think, um, for, for you know, very little money. Um, and, uh, yeah, and everything worked, you know. Um, what well, we tried and overdub and it worked. Um, you know, the, the the songs got the, the rhythm tracks went down seamlessly. Um, sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you don't. But but that was an easy record to, to make. And and, and um, I mean, I, I look back and listen to it now, and, and it still sounds good. I mean, I must say that's what one of my favorite records that we ever did. Um, uh, it holds up really well. There's no gimmicks on it. There's no. Um, 
you know, there, there's no psychedelics on it. There's no flanging or phasing. Or right. Anything. It's just very straight down, straight recorded, very naturalistically recorded, which means that it doesn't sound dated necessarily. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm quite proud of that record. Did you know even then, did you, like, upon finishing it, did you both have a pretty good sense, like, hey, this, I think we, I think we nailed it with this one. Well, I think that about every record. Uh, <laughs> well, it's true. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I'm wrong, uh, for sure. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think we we liked it at the time. Um, I, th- I think we always had high hopes for 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 the record. Uh, you know, it never sold as well as we thought it would. Um, we had a very minor hit um, as a, a single. Um, you know, the, the bright lights with, with the title track. Yeah. Yeah, it's a track. You know, scraped the the UK top forty, I think. Um, but the album really didn't sell very well. So, so, so when that happens, we, we shrug our shoulders and say, "Okay, next record, you know, we'll, we'll do better." Um, but the next record, we were much more compromised, I think. Yeah. Well, as time went on, obviously the the record has gained more and more um, esteem. You know, people people look back on it. Uh, your conversion to Sufism happened not while you shortly after that record right yeah uh, i'm curious what ha- you know you write a little bit about linda's own experience with sufism and i i certainly don't want to ask you to sum up how she felt about stuff because that's not fair to her she should you know be able to speak about that but um but i'm curious if if for you uh that it felt did did you, I mean did you have any sort of doubts as 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 you had converted and were sort of maybe leading the charge a little bit in that in that regard um did you did you feel any tension between the two of you at the time uh regarding that that sort of journey that you that you were both on yeah. spiritually well it was it was tricky you know it was a time when you know i was turning my life upside down really um you know i stopped drinking um some of my old friends kind of kept away um sandy didn't like that you had all stopped drinking uh you you write about yeah she did yeah and she wasn't the only one really um yeah yeah you know, so, so sometimes uh you know if you have a drink problem which i think i did um and, and i tend to hang out with other people who drank too much really uh, um you want other people to, to reinforce uh, your viewpoint about whatever you're consuming, you know. Um, and when you don't do that, people get very upset. Um, so, so yeah, that, so that was a tough time uh, for me because I, I'm kind of in turmoil, you know, to, to, to trying to change my life. Uh, and, and I'm determined that, that, that really actually not to influence Linda too much. I, I, I didn't want her to follow me down that particular path. Um, I, I really wanted to, to you know, to ha- have her own mind and make her own mind up. But uh, I, I think she, um, I think she was attracted to her as well. And, and, and um, you know, I, I think of her own volition kind of got into it, which was probably a good thing. You know, we, we could still be of one mind. We, we could still, you know, um, understand each other's point of view. Yeah, I mean, not only did you have your musical relationship and your musical partnership, but you had a family. You had all this going on. Yeah. So, so you know, that makes sense that there was that uh, that that connection. I I, I want to 
jump back just a little bit to the the psychedelic thing that we had talked about and touched on. You mentioned that oh. that that although it was unavoidable, you didn't really like acid very much, and and you you talk about how you didn't like the sense of oneness that it sort of or 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 rather maybe were uncomfortable with that sense of oneness. I'm curious if as you got deeper into Sufism. Did you ever come around to anything uh, that was maybe uh, related to those acid ideas, but in a more holistic way for you personally? I mean, I guess asking did did you ever transcend is kind of a feels kind of kind of gauche, but I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> um, yes, ask it anyway. That's good. Uh, let me think. Um, well, I mean, the, the the problem that you know that I had with acid was, you know, I, I didn't want to be like everybody else on, the, on on that scene. You know, I didn't want to be all peace and love. You know, sure. Uh, so I said, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not taking acid. Forget it. But but then people would just slip it to you. It was yeah. unavoidable. It was absolutely unavoidable. And and the problem I had really was I felt out of control. Like, yeah. You know, I, if I wanted to do it, then I was going to do it on my own terms, on my own time frame. But here I was being spiked, you know, before a gig or something. Right. You know, I'm thinking, shit, you know, I really, I, I, I don't want to be in this state because I know I'm playing shit. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, so that was more of the problem. I mean, the feeling of oneness, I, I mean, I like that. That, that was the good bit. Mm -hmm. You know, was that, was that feeling that, that you, you were part of this, of everything, really. Um, that, that felt really good. And, and I wanted to feel that again. Uh, but in a more spiritual way. I, and as I evolved as, as a human being, um, uh, I, I, I did feel that. Um, um, and I, I still feel it. I mean, not permanently, but from time to time, I, I, I still um, get that state of being where you uh, feel connected to um, you know, the rest of the universe um, and to you know, the, the great spirit or whatever you want to call it, you know, um, uh it's hard to talk about that stuff after, after a certain point but um yes of um, course yeah, yeah i mean I, I and i understand why it is hard to talk about it because you're describing something so immense i'm i wonder does it does it ever happen on stage for you when you're in the midst of of, of playing something musically is there some uh similar uh connection to to that feeling that comes about yeah. as you know playing musically i, I think it is similar yeah um it's similar. I, th I think because uh, when you play music, um, there is an alteration to your consciousness. Um, this is hard to describe, but I, I've never had a you know a, a, like a psychologist or a brain specialist describe exactly what's going on in that case. But but you, you, you know what they call the zone. If you, if if you if you get into that that frame of mind where you are immersed in the music, then. Um, you know the, what you think of as you that does kind of uh, get, get go to the background, and and you do feel connected to, to the to, to other musicians. You feel connected to the audience. Um, you you feel in, inside the music as it's playing, mm -hmm. um, which which is a, another way of lo losing yourself. You know, um, it's it's all about losing yourself. I think uh, losing that conscious you and just becoming a conduit, just becoming something. That the music flows through, yeah. Um, but, but it does get hard to hard to talk about. It's uh, there's no vocabulary. Well, yeah, yeah. It's the it's a it's something you feel more than something you can say. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, obviously, you know, your 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 marriage to to Linda ended. Um, 
you did produce like another classic, which I already referenced, Shoot Out the Lights. You don't get extremely deep into that one or 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 really anything else. This book's scope is fairly limited. Um, it only yeah. describes what it's a, you know, we're talking you know, seven or eight years, really. Not like a, not a, not a, not a, not a full rundown. Um, so I, so I wonder, do you, do you think, and I'm sure you've got this question a million times, but do you think you want to write more more books? Do you have more stories that you want to tell, or or do you feel like this is sort of this is the one you 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 wanted to do, and and who knows what comes next? Well, I think uh, this um, is an intense time period. Uh, that, that was one of the reasons I wanted to write about it because I I, I could write about every year uh, in detail. Um, and I wanted to stop where I stopped because the next few years I wasn't too fond of in, in many ways. I don't think I made good music. Um, I think it wasn't until at 81 when we made Shoot Out the Lights that, that we kind of got back in the saddle almost, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't want to kind of skip years or write about years um, that I, I thought were, you know, disappointing for me anyway. So, uh, you know, volume two could pick up, you know, in 81 or something. Um, but then, you know... Um, in some ways, life was less intense. You know, 81, 82, um, You know, I was just touring a lot, but, but it became repetitive. Mm. And you know, uh, you play in, uh, you know, you play Philadelphia for the tenth time. Um, right. What, what are you going to write about? Yeah, you know, the first time you go, it's all new, and you say, "Oh, good, look at that! Look at that! Look at that! That's fantastic! That's fantastic!" Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you know, the tenth time, you're staying in the same hotel, you're, you're playing the same gig, you're eating the same food, something maybe you know. So, um, you know, it gets harder to write interesting things, uh, and, and I can say that the same about the next, you know, forty years almost. Um, that uh, stuff just gets more spread out. You know, I mean, that there are great things to write about. But they really are much more spread out, and I get bored with those, um, you know, rock biographies where, you know, like those, those door stops, like the Keith Richard one, where, where about two thirds of the way through, I'm thinking, I'm done with this. You know, it, yeah. it's getting, you know, it, it's it's not as interesting as it was when he's writing about the '70s or the '60s. You know, yeah. So, so, so I didn't want to fall into that trap. I, I didn't want to taper off. I just thought, well, I'll come to a dead stop. Uh, if I write again, then great. Um, maybe I'll skip um, straight to volume six. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll you'll pick up uh, farther down the road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. you've maintained uh, an intense uh, work schedule. It feels like to me. There's always great new records coming out. You've done a really uh, a, 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 like a very your most recent stuff has all been really, really interesting and fascinating. And you've worked with great people, people like Jeff Tweedy, uh, and, and, and others. Um, I wonder if over the course of the, uh, quarantine, were you, were you mostly finished with this book or were you working on the book during, uh, 2020? Uh, it was pretty much done before COVID hit. Uh, but with books, you know, that there's a, a long lead time. There's lots of setup things. Um, there's a lot of editing that goes on too. So, yeah. so the editing process was, was still going on. Um, you know, we, we were getting, you know, um, publishing clearances, all, all that kinds of stuff, um, but before we could actually release it. So that takes a while. Uh, but you know, um, you know, lockdown was good for writing. I got lots of writing done, lots of songwriting. 
so I'm uh, I'm ahead. I'm, I'm two years ahead on, on on my songwriting, which is great. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, but I'm at the same time very frustrated, and I really want to get out there and, and play to an audience. And I think every musician on the planet is feeling the same, and uh, perhaps audiences are feeling the same too. I, I'm sure a lot of people want to get back to a festival or a show of some description. Um, maybe not the mosh pit this year, but, uh, you know, something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I know that mosh pits have historically been a really big problem at your shows and that you've always struggled with <laughs> moshing audiences. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you're right, though. Some of the stuff, uh, you, you write a little bit about punk rock at the end of the, the book. Um, and, 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 and although you weren't a, a punk, a punk guitarist, you know, um, I do hear some of that that intensity that you that you note uh, that 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 early punk stuff had. It felt tied yeah. to that early rock and roll that you heard, and I think that courses through your your whole discography. And some of your playing on your most recent stuff is just about as it's as intense as anything you've ever played. And 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 uh, mm. to me, that's such a, a mark of that um, that spirit that you hear on these early records seems like it's just carried right on through to now um and i uh i think that's such a such an incredible thing and this book offers a lot of insight into that so i really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me about it and to uh to be so open about uh this stuff um i really enjoyed reading this and it was a genuine pleasure to speak with you well thanks so much for having me um Thanks for playing through the book. I always appreciate that, and and uh, thank you for your time. I, I, I it's, it's been uh, it's been great. Thank you. Richard Thompson on Bees Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975, which is available wherever you get books. I recommend you uh, find yourself an independent bookstore and get a copy of this great read. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce transmissions. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton. Sarah Goldstein and Jonathan Mark Walls create designs for the program. And our executive producer and top of the show announcer is Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Gage. You can check out his weekly Sirius XM radio show every single Wednesday, same day the podcast drops. And, uh, and you should, because it's the best. We'll be back next week with another interesting conversation. I'm joined by legendary jazz composer and theorist Wadada Leo Smith. And it is a mind-blowing talk. So uh, bookmark that. And remember, you can check us out over on Patreon. You can head over to Aquarium Drunkard as well. We're running transcripts with all of our uh, podcast guests now. So so if you want to go back and, and read my talk with Richard Thompson, or if you just prefer to read it, you can do that over there. So let folks know that we've got that for you at Aquarium Drunkard along with a lot of other interesting creative reporting. So head over, check it out, and uh, stay tuned for next week with Wadada Leo Smith. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Transmissions. Back soon.